Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to the Food and Sight podcast where I, Kimberly Wilson, chartered psychologist and artisan food producer, take you through all things food and psychology. In today's episode, I have the pleasure and privilege of talking to someone who is really at the top of their game about an issue of increasing concern. My guest is Rini McGregor. Rini is a performance and eating disorders specialist dietitian, and as part of her very impressive career so far, she has been the dietitian for athletes at the London 2012 and Rio 2016 Olympic and Paralympic Games and the 2018 Commonwealth Games. In addition, she's a member of the International Task Force on Orthorexia. Orthorexia is a relatively new mental health condition which is characterised by a dangerous obsession with clean or perfect eating, and its rise has been linked to the growth in wellness bloggers and influencers promoting restrictive diets on social media. In this conversation, Rini gives some incredibly touching and at times shocking descriptions of the struggles of some of the people that she has worked with, really illuminating the seriousness of the challenges of eating disorders and feeding problems, and why she, I and others care so much that the information about food, diet and nutrition out there on social media is safe and accurate. This is my longest conversation so far on the podcast and I didn't consider for a moment cutting it down because it's such an interesting conversation with someone who is incredibly qualified and skilled in her field. I think anyone who listens to it will take something away from it, even if that is just a deeper appreciation of the complexity of nutrition science and the care and skill with which it is applied to the treatment and management of illness and disease. Here's my conversation with Rini McGregor. I am here with Rini McGregor. Thank you for joining me, Rini. Thank you for having me, Kimberly. This is going to be, I think everyone needs to prepare for probably quite a long conversation. (laughs) There's so, so, so much I want to talk to you about and ask you about. So let's just start with, for the good of the audience, could you introduce yourself and your job title? Yeah, okay, thank you. So I'm Rini McGregor. I'm best known now as a performance and eating disorder specialist dietitian, um, but I guess my career has spanned over many, many years. Um, I started off actually doing biochemistry, um, which I loved, but I've always been, I guess people call me a very personable person. I kind of knew that I didn't really want to be in a lab, although I find that aspect of it very, very interesting and it definitely comes through my practice. Um, it wasn't what I wanted to do. So I then um, did a postgrad in dietetics and for the first sort of five years of my career was a clinical dietitian working in a range of specialities but finally settled on kind of paediatric eating disorders, adolescence, 
I'm going to stop you there. And just for the sake of listeners, I'm going to ask you to explain what a biochemistry degree looks like yeah. and then the shift to dietitian. Uh, sure, dietetics. okay. So, um, so biochemistry degree was very much around understanding the chemistry within the body. So it's kind of the, the chemistry of the biology within the body. So it's looking really at those biochemical, those, those processes in the body, so digestion and really looking at it at that cellular level and understanding all the different... Um, ways in which our body produces energy, how hormones are regulated, and how it all fits together. And I suppose that's really kind of quite uh, important now in what I do, in, in my job, in what I do right now. But um, yeah, I, felt, I loved it. Like, I'm, I'm a bit of a geek, sadly, um, but Not I loved it. <laughs> Geeks are welcome here. Um, and I love, I just love learning, I think. I love understanding. I like to make sense of what's going on um, and I know that it's not just a case of if you look at one part of the body it's going to suddenly if it's going to be okay you have to look at everything so I think that's why I was fascinated in doing mm. biochemistry um, and I moved on to dietetics actually just pretty much immediately after so my undergrad was in biochemistry from Nottingham and then I went straight into a dietetics degree um, at Glasgow which at that time was a year of um, theory which was which was fine. I had, you know, I loved Glasgow. It was a great city, and I really loved learning that. And then we had a year as a practical placement, which I did at Guys and St Thomas's. So really so great. Out to London. Yeah, yeah. So really great grounding from a from a you know from a clinical point of view. I got to shadow loads of different dietitians, um, and we looked at lots of different aspects. So you you spend like two weeks on each ward. Mm-hmm. So you start off with maybe just a general medical ward, and then you move into an oncology ward, and a gastro ward, and an HIV ward, and paediatric, renal. I mean, I covered everything mm-hmm. in my placement. Um, what does a dietitian do? Uh, very good question. What does a dietitian do? So in general, what a dietitian does is kind of look at the, the symptoms. So for example, on a renal ward, you've got somebody whose kidneys are not working properly and it's looking at what can you do from a nutritional point of view to help them optimize their health. Um, You know, with HIV, it was very similar. It was looking at kind of the symptoms of HIV or sadly if it progressed to AIDS and and also looking at medication and the interactions with medication and how you help them to um, manage their nutrition. A lot of these clinical conditions mean that people lose their appetite or they lose a lot of weight or they have side effects from their medication that that have an impact on fluid retention so it was about problem solving I think from a nutritional point of view which is why I think I love it because I like kind of looking at a problem and going well how am I going to fix that and and there's no real straight path so I'm going to have to look at it from all these different angles which is what I enjoy Um, in some cases and I didn't do much of this but in some cases if you're working as a very um, sort of specialised ITU type dietitian, you'd be looking at kind of how to make an impact when somebody's obviously in a very bad way in terms of coma or mm-hmm. unconscious and, and how do you maintain lean muscle mass, how do you maintain metabolic processes so that that person can still function um, and give them all the nutrients and vitamins they need so it's very medical in terms of actual prescriptive nutrient uh, food that's put through a peg tube or a, mm. or a or a nasal gastric tube. So I didn't do an awful lot of that, but um, I, I did cover it in my in my placement. And I guess I did my year as a student dietitian. Uh, and the way it works as a student dietitian at that time was you had the last six weeks where you basically were let loose. 
And it's like, oh my God. Throwing vegetables at people. Literally, like, let loose. Like, literally, like, right, here you go. Here's your wards. Here's your ward. Like, here's your, uh, you you know, this is what you've got to manage. Here's your client list. Off you go. And, uh, you know, guys in St. Thomas is a big hospital. It's a lot of people. It's a lot of people. And I I loved it, but it was also extremely frightening, as you can imagine. Um, But by that point, you should be ready. You know, it's, it's like any intern. You're kind of getting to the point where you're kind of ready. And thankfully, I passed that with flying colours. And then I was very lucky. I got my first job at St. George's and um, worked on general medical wards. But again, St. George's is Downing Tooting. Tooting, yeah. So again, massive, big teaching hospital, massive area of um, opportunity. And I was really, I'm, I'm, I'm still to this day so happy that my mentor at that time was a dietitian called Catherine Collins, who, if you don't know her, look her up because she is incredible. She was... She really gave me, uh, I suppose, direction in the kind of practitioner and the kind of dietitian I wanted to be. And I didn't want to just settle for, you know, kind of theory. I wanted to to challenge and look outside the box and, and be really kind of, um, I suppose, I suppose, open to to what what you could do as a dietitian. I didn't want to just settle for somebody who just, you know provided a diet sheet and off you go. I want to look at the person holistically. And and Catherine was was one of the first dietitians that kind of was very big in the media. Um, and this, we are talking like 20 years ago when I did my first job. So, you know, and she really probably is the person I have to thank for the fact that I tend to put my head above a parapet and and, and, and make quite loud comments about things when, I'm, when I feel passionate about mm. them. So I did dietetics I mean I worked in clinic in the clinical field of dietetics for about five years and I, I moved around I went from uh, Tooting St George's in Tooting to King's College in London where I then became a pediatric dietitian so I was just working in children's nutrition um, and again covered a range of things from allergies to cystic fibrosis to um, eating disorders to oncology on the ward. I mean, it was yeah, PKU, yeah, and did all those different, and even liver disease because it's massive in um, at King's. So again, really good grounding, just from a clinical point of view, just having that clinical knowledge, understanding the medical side of a condition and what impact you can have at all the different stages, um, and actually how important nutrition is from a recovery point of view, but also from a maintenance point of view for some of these. In that time, it was children working alongside um, speech therapists to help children that have fears and phobias around food. You know, it was a very good grounding for me. I think as a dietitian, I I don't think I would have gone any other path. Like I know there's loads of different ways of coming into nutrition, but for me, I wanted that. I've always been hungry about understanding as part of the pun, <laughs> so but speak, been, yeah, yeah <laughs> always been like hungry for knowledge and understanding the medical side of things, so that I was kind of on a par with medics and being able to kind of hold my own ground and I remember a couple of like I got quite well known for for kind of being quite assertive with consultants <laughs> saying no no we can't do that we have to feed this if we don't feed this child then you know we're not we're not we have a duty of care and, and so being quite assertive with with them so um, I've never really been quiet in that point of view um, which is really funny because Kimberly actually as a person I'm actually very very quiet like in my in my own kind of I like time on my own I like to be reflective but when it comes to my work I suppose I'm just very passionate about what I do and that comes across. Mm. I think there is a thing about sometimes it being easier to advocate 
for other people or for other things yeah. much more than it is for yourself. And and if you care about your work and if you're working paediatrics, absolutely, you yeah. imagine that you were ready to stand up and, and um, advocate for your patients. Feeding issues in children can be quite scary, can't yeah. they? They create yeah. a lot of anxiety for yeah. everybody um, around that child. What are the most kind of common feeding issues with children? I, th- I think a lot of it comes from the, the different developmental stages. I think parents become very fearful of child choking because you hear of those cases where a child has choked and something awful's happened. And I think, but but you know, working with specialist speech therapists, you realise that that's a very normal rite of passage. A child has to go through that developmental stage, and actually our bodies are incredible and we have a gag reflex for that reason and you know it's it's actually very rare that something awful is going to happen so i think a lot of the the, a lot of the problems i saw were when developmental stages were skipped you know like um parents kept them on smooth pureed food for, for far too long or didn't integrate food in quickly enough and they carried on drinking lots and lots of milk and obviously a baby a child can be quite lazy and drinking milk's a lot easier than having to eat something and so you know and obviously as a parent you're then fearful that oh my god my child's going to starve if I don't they're not eating so you give them bottles and bottles of milk and not realize that they're filling up and and actually that's not helping them so those were some of the kind of main ones I saw we did have a couple of cases where it did stem from things like, for example, a child got very, very sick, like had very severe tonsillitis, mm-hmm. and it became very painful for the child to eat. And they got a fear of food, fear of eating. And the only thing that helped them was they had this association with being given cowpole, which is pink. And so we had this 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 poor child who was about four or five years old and was literally just eating pink food, and that was it. Um, so literally strawberry yogurt, um, strawberry jam on toast... You know, it was it was very limited in what he ate, and obviously that was then having an impact on his growth and development. Sure. So it was coming up with ideas to help the parents move forward. And one of the things we did was start using food coloring, and we coloured mashed potato, and then that got accepted. And and you start to build up. And the other thing is getting giving parents confidence. Mm-hmm. That's the big thing when you're working with children is you have to give parents confidence. And even with like now my area in terms of eating disorders again. Supporting parents is so key. Even if 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 the person in 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 case you know in sort of the, the person we're talking about is twenty twenty four. I mean, I've got clients who are twenty twenty four, but you have to remember that an eating disorder is such a de- debilitating condition, mm-hmm. as I know you know from from your work, that they do kind of regress into mm-hmm. becoming very young children, and they 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 rely on their parents for support. Mm-hmm. It becomes that kind of attachment, that need for security and and someone to reassure them that it's going to be okay and the problem with an eating disorder particularly like anorexia and bulimia but very much anorexia and orthorexia is that you can't be softly 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 you have to challenge the anorexic voice Mm -hmm. otherwise you don't get progress you know and so one of the things that I tend to do is is try and give parents permission to actually you know to actually to say, well, you know what, if they don't do that, there are going to be consequences because they have to understand that the eating disorder is is a negative. It's not a positive. At the moment, it's their coping mechanism. Mm. And if you allow them to go and do exercise when they're a BMI of 14, 15, 16, you're normalising it. If you allow them to go and see their friends, 
when they're very underweight, you're normalizing the condition. And of course, that means they're not, you know, they're not, they've got no reason to fight it. So I think one of the, the big jobs is, is being able to give parents support and permission to, um, to, to, I suppose, to behave in a way that maybe doesn't feel comfortable to them because parents don't want to upset their child mm. or they don't want to go against them. So, um, so from, from, yeah, so, I mean, going back to the eating, a lot of it was fatty eating, fussy eating, you know. So, again, the first thing is kind of getting to accept food on their plate. You know, it might just literally simply be, right, just, they don't have to eat it, but tell them they just have to have it on their plate for a few minutes, that's it. And then you build up mm-hmm. and you build up and you build up. And normally what happens is that eventually once it becomes something that's normalised, they will try a bit and they'll realise it's not that bad and, and, and you see change. But as with any nutritional or and, and psychological type of problem, it takes time. Yes. <laughs> I mean, there's, oh, there's so much in what you just said. Um, I was really struck by this and yeah first of all the overlap between food and psychology and I know I'm biased in that (laughs) but food is deeply psychological as far as I'm concerned it's I don't think you can separate them and it's so interesting to hear about your young client who made that association with pink food because cowpaw was safe or cowpaw helped them Mm -hmm. feel better Mm -hmm. and so anything that was cowpaw like was was okay and that's a psychological association you know that's there's nothing there's no other way to describe that. Um, and it sounds as if you had to find these very creative ways to work within the child's remit. You know, it wasn't just about kind of forcing him to eat. Like, this is this is food, you should eat it, carry on. But about understanding yeah. where... He, it was a boy, did you say? Yeah, he yeah. was a boy, yeah, yeah. Um, where he was, what the psychological stakes were for him, that this was for him a very real and frightening thing. Yeah. Um, and to be able to be there and, and build a foundation of safety and trust and allow him the space and time to kind of feel safe with these things again. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's such an important aspect, and I'm sure we'll get onto this more a, a little bit later on, but understanding the whatever feels like the harm or the risk or the danger or the trauma related to food problems because one of the things that I say quite a lot certainly to the people I work with is that this isn't about food this is about something else entirely um but let's let's try we'll try and stay chronological (laughs) yeah yeah I know we're going to jump around just that's how my brain works no no it's mine too and I'm just trying to kind of otherwise I feel that people might get a bit confused and angry listening to this so um you were on the paediatrics ward and how was it common that you were seeing eating disorders in children so by the time um I got towards the end of my NHS career should we say I was basically pretty much just seeing eating disorders um and how old were the children that you were working mainly sort of teenagers um and and you know in fact it was probably that it was i mean a story i'll tell you in a second that actually made me leave the nhs sadly um and you know i'd worked this case came in i think she was 13 or 14 when she came in it was a friday afternoon she was 26 kilos and it was an awful awful situation to be in i remember it being four o'clock in the afternoon i'm thinking 
mm, okay and but and I was not gonna, have gone home consultants gone exactly and I was like well I can't leave her you know and I've got to get this I've got to feed this girl she hadn't been eating she had stopped completely I mean she'd obviously reduced and reduced and reduced and she'd completely stopped for the last four or five days so we knew we were like we had to get three days maybe no three days we had to get some food into her so the only option in this case was an ng tube um, which we had to do and that's a a nasogastric tube yeah but the problem obviously is when somebody hasn't been eating at all or they've been eating very very limited amounts if you start to put nutrients back into the body you can cause something called refeeding syndrome, which is kind of like a rush of nutrients to the uh, to the digestive system, which can then alter your um, blood biochemistry, and particularly alter things like magnesium and phosphorus and potassium, which can then have a negative impact on on your heart. That becomes a heart risk, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. And so, refeeding is a is, is a real fear of any any dietitian working within uh, probably an eating disorder unit where you are going to be seeing these very, very poorly people that you have to refeed through a tube. It's a big issue mm-hmm. and you have to be very, very careful about how quickly you reintroduce food. So we're talking like, you know, you start at something like literally like 20 mils an hour of food, drip, 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 drip feeding. And obviously it was a weekend. So it was one of those where you kind of, I wasn't going to be able to sleep if I didn't go in and see her. I'd, I'd be worried and I was ringing up the ward and just checking blood. So you check the blood uh, biochemistry to make sure that nothing's going off, everything's looking okay, and then you can start to improve and increase the amount of food that that goes into the body. And I worked with this young girl for um, five months in total. She was on the ward, um, and we had to have her on a medical ward because there was no other place for her. Um, and I worked with her and and her psychiatrist, to be fair. Um, and we worked as a, as a really good team. And we got her to a point where she was becoming more rational about food um, she started to understand that it wasn't really about food it was more about her perception of herself and we helped her to rebuild some of that confidence and challenge some of the issues that were that were that were a problem for her mm-hmm. I and mean, a lot of it being about expectations within the home and, and what was expected of her and her not feeling like she was meeting those expectations and 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 her not wanting to deal with that so numbing it through control and restriction of food and and body weight and I think as she started to become aware of that that really helped her to to move forward obviously you then have a also do have that that real real anxiety and fear about eating Mm. anything that's not on your yeah anything and even like I mean we're talking I think just to put it into context people that don't don't work with eating disorders you know we're talking an extra 50 calories is is a lot for these people you know they will they will be i've got clients now who will text me and go it is okay for me to do to have this it's an extra 50 calories it is okay isn't it and it's being able to give them that reassurance that you know what without being dismissive 50 calories really isn't going to make or break what's going on most Mm. people will be eating probably a few hundred calories different every day and and it's kind of trying to help them understand that but they're very rigid in Mm. their thinking you know we know that being underweight affects the way the brain works. It, in those that have been underweight for a very long time, there's marked changes in the brain if you look at MRI uh, scans. And so we know it's very black or white. Mm. And so trying to negotiate that is a big, big challenge. Um, but as I said, with this young girl, we got her to a point where she was able to 
to be safe to go home again. She wasn't quite restored, but she was almost there and we felt happy that she could be managed in outpatients. And um, I was really keen to, to kind of see the journey through because mm. I started with her five months ago and I was really keen to see her through. And we'd, we developed a very good relationship and she was, you know, she was very trusting and, and, and I could get her to do, to, to try new foods in, um, without being too anxious. And unfortunately, and, and, and this is no this is no blame and no fault, but it is just the way the NHS mm. works. It's a funding issue. It's it is what it is. And I was told by my um, boss at the time that I couldn't continue to work with her as an outpatient because her postcode was not funded um, to offer outpatient treatment. And I think that for me was it. I was like, you know what? I love what I do. I care about people. The reason I became a dietitian was because I care about people and I want to make a difference to their quality of life. That's what my job is. Mm. And if you're now telling me I can't help this person... You don't have contact with her. Then, then, then what's the point of me being in this system? But it, I mean, it makes it's probably worth making the point about how difficult and how important those transition moments are when you're moving from an institutional position to back into the community I worked in uh, prisons for a long time Mm. and it's it seems um, counterintuitive but the two weeks before release were the most anxious most dangerous times for the women I was working with because and it's not just about being institutionalised. There is an aspect of that, but and, and an aspect of losing the routine and, and the safety and the relationships that you've built mm. up. And perhaps it's the first time that someone has paid any attention to you, yeah. listened to you, cared about you. It's the first time, some of the women I worked with, it was the first time in prison that they'd ever been to a dentist, all of this stuff. And, and you have to then think about going back out into the world and dealing with all the stuff that actually you didn't have to deal with while you're inside whatever institution you're in, whether that's a boarding school or whether that's a hospital Absolutely. ward or whether that's a, a prison. Um, and they become incredibly anxious. Yeah. And that's when we had the highest risk of people having some sort of breakdown, getting into fights, uh, you know, people losing the jobs that they built up within the prison because they were so, so, so anxious about that transition. And so for this young girl... Yeah who was so unwell, the idea that she should just return back to the place where she'd been unwell Mm. without the support that you'd built up is actually so worrying. It's it's very tough to hear. Yeah, it was, it was, it was, and for me, it was a real poignant moment. It was like, you know, this is, this is not, this is not who I am. Mm. And, and you're right, you know, if we think about all transitions in life, I mean, that's when you see people like, you know, teenagers, that's why it's a very critical time in their life because there's so many transitions going on. If someone has a loss, you know, whether it's a marriage breakdown or, or a, you know, or a bereavement, or these are these are points mm-hmm. where, as you just said, the emotions and the feelings, whether it's anxiety, whether it's loss, whether it's trauma, they're too much to deal with. And that's when people tend to then look for a coping mechanism whether that's food in the case of people I work with or whether that's alcohol mm-hmm. or drugs or, or, or work, exercise or work. work and and you know I, I can definitely you know I can definitely personally relate to that kind of the latter thing about work because I think you know I've had some difficult times in the last few years and I've been so mindful of 
being professional and not kind of letting my personal problems show in terms of uh, physically show that um, I think I have. I did. I mean, I think, you know, when we first, when we, we got here, I think I was like, oh, I'm quite tired. And, uh, um, y- you know, I, I, I do throw myself into work and I'm very conscious of that now. And I think, you know, we talked about the strategies I've put in place for this year and I'm giving myself plenty of time and, and time off in between. But you do, you look, you all, it's human nature to look for a means of coping. Mm. But I think some of the means of coping are not healthy and they can become more of a problem as mm. in the case of something like anorexia mm. or orthorexia where it becomes another psychological problem to deal with you know mm. it's it creates another another problem and so it was at that stage that I actually gave up working for the NHS and decided that I would um, actually take a bit of time out I was I was actually at that point where I was like I don't know whether I want to do this anymore I'd mm. found the whole situation very very traumatizing and very very difficult and I had two small children at this stage like I had a a, you know a a one and a half year old and a three-year-old so I was emotionally quite exhausted and I just thought I was going to take some time out um and I did but I'm not very good at time out as we've discussed (laughs) and so when I took my time out I decided to do a post-grad in sports nutrition because you know time out that's what you do don't you (laughs) um so I did my postgrad in, in applied sports nutrition because I've always been sporty, like just to kind of, again, just to let, you know, I've always been sporty. And at this stage I was kind of, I was doing quite a lot of running and um, I was getting asked a lot of questions from the club that I was running with about nutrition. And I thought, you know what, I could give them an answer, but that's not, that's not how I work. It's not how I roll. I want to be credible in what I do. So while I could go away and read it and I've got enough nutrition knowledge as a dietitian to give them answers, I, I want to know exactly what I have to do from a sports point of view. So I decided to do the reading around it, um, which again, I loved because it went back to my roots of biochemistry and physiology. And 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 I, and I had a great time. It was hard work, as they always are, especially when you've got family or you've got work commitments or you've got it all. It's, it's mm. hard work. Um, but loved it again really gained a lot from it and um was very very fortunate that by the time I'd kind of completed that and the girls were kind of back at school they were sort of starting school now I um was asked to work with the rhythmic gymnastics team that went into London so that was kind of my 2012 2012 yeah so that was my big big break into the sports world I guess I mean you know throw them in there it's a pretty big break exactly (laughs) and um and the reason why I was asked was because I had that clinical background and obviously you can imagine gymnastics particularly rhythmic gymnastics it's all about aesthetics all of it and I remember walking into my first day and meeting the coach and the coach said to me right we've got seven girls here they all need to look the same by the time we go to London. Whoa. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. Oh, okay. So um, I have a few. <laughs> <laughs> uh, see, I because I thought what you were going to say there was the coach said, we have seven girls here. Four of them had eating problems. I would like you to help them, please. No? No. 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 This, this is me and my idealism. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so we... Um, and I did, I mean, obviously I had words with the coach and said, you know, that's kind of not possible because you've got some that are five foot ten and some that are five foot three and it's going to be a little bit tricky. But again, you know, when you work with anybody, 
you have to build a relationship mm. and and to be fair the, the coach and I still we still chat and we still work together on, on different projects and she's she I think we all learned a lot that year going into the games mm. and um we did what I understood I had to understand about the the sport and I spent hours and hours sitting watching them train watching videos on on what she meant when she said they all have to look the same and actually what it comes down to um is that when they do their routines with the ball mm. or the ribbon which um, are amazing I, i'm always hypnotized yeah. by the timing and the skill so, so they get marked on obviously that they get marked on the skill and, and the jumps and, and everything else they're doing in between but they also get marked on something called the lines so when they are um when they're leaping, mm-hmm. it's looking at the the lines that their bodies make. So what she meant was they all need to be very toned. They okay. need to be very, okay. um, very lean. Um, now our girls' genetics are never going to look like Eastern European gymnasts ever, because we're just genetically not going to be like that. And so. You know, it was still a lot of pressure. It was a very pressurised environment. And and I was really grateful. I was working alongside a, a sports psychologist. We worked together very, very closely. And um, we're actually very good friends now because you, you don't go through something like that without bonding and, and really getting to know each other. And she's actually at the Commonwealth Games at the moment. So uh, um, she's doing a great job out there. <laughs> and... Um, we were and our main remit was that we wanted to maintain these girls and keep them healthy because you know sports are really really tough environment it's very competitive you generally have the the types of people doing sports the athletes themselves have that absolute personality trait that you associate with disordered eating in terms of they're very you know they're very driven they're very self-critical they're very obsessive they're just they're sensitive exactly you you name it they've got it and they're in an environment which is demanding that Mm -hmm. and it's very very hard and they can't help but compare themselves to other people and um but i'm really pleased to say that we really did keep these girls well and they performed brilliantly and they looked how they were meant to look. <laughs> I got the gold star. It's all right. Um, and I actually still keep in touch with most of them. You know, I saw one of them um, back in November when I did the stylist show. She was actually there because she was working there and she came over and she said, I can't believe it's you. And it was just lovely because, you know, you can, and, and I think when you know you have that rapport, you know you've done a good job. Mm-hmm. And so it was, I'm not going to lie to you, that six months was incredibly stressful for me I felt under huge amounts of pressure to keep these girls safe Mm. and well while also being ethically challenged by the sport and it was a very difficult place to Mm. be but it did make me appreciate that actually the reason I was the the chosen practitioner was because I'd had this background in disordered eating and um, and my knowledge of sport and I suppose that kind of sets the scene for where I am now I mean obviously over the last um, I mean that was 2012 we're now we're in 2018 so over the last six years I've, I've then worked with other sports going into um, Rio but uh, again slight change of track and I worked with um, Paralympic sports so I worked with um, wheelchair fencing and wheelchair basketball so 
Again, really, really interesting, exciting, challenging, because you're not only then are you dealing with the fact that you want these athletes to perform at their best, but you have to consider their clinical conditions Mm. and actually be really realistic about what's achievable from a body comp point of view, from a performance point of view. And and I think, um, you know, I think again, in both cases, the reason that I was successful in getting the job was because of that clinical background, Mm. because it's not easy to just kind of just go in with the sports. You need to understand that, that, that actually it's not just about giving somebody the same advice as you would if they didn't have a disability. It's actually understanding that actually their requirements might be slightly different. You know, if they've got um, a palsy, for example, their requirements might be higher because they're, you know, they've got this involuntary movement that you have to be aware of. Mm. Um, And again, pressurised environment, same issues, eating disorders did come out. And again, being able to help athletes to appreciate that, you know, this is a perception of themselves. It's not about... Mm it's not about what they look like really it's actually the anxiety they feel about not being good enough mm-hmm. and you know there was there was an issues with with some of the with some of the basketball athletes in terms of they felt very insecure in their performance mm-hmm. and they felt like they you know they said oh we're, we're always being shouted at and i'm like yeah but that's not about you everybody's being shouted at it's just that you've taken that personally and made it about you actually it's not about you you know it's not saying you're not good enough if you weren't good enough you wouldn't be here you wouldn't be training every day you wouldn't be going off to Rio so you can't say you're not good enough because you are and and it's again just helping them to understand that but obviously the one thing you do have on your side when you're working with an athlete with an eating disorder is that you do have their performance as a motivator you know, you do have that. And and I'm really fortunate in, in where I'm at now working with with different athletes and coaches is that I can I can work closely with a coach as well and ask and, and the coach can be really supportive of that decision. You know, like you can almost say to a coach, I don't feel this athlete's ready to be training at the moment, or I feel like it would be detrimental if we carried on at this intensity. And you can you know, you can you can manipulate their training so that you can give them something to work towards. Um, and I think that's really important because of the, the problem with an eating disorder is, as we said earlier, is that, you know, it's a coping mechanism. Mm. But until it's seen as something negative, they're mm. going to hold on to it. You know, it's an extreme behaviour, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's... You can hear my notes rustling there as we're talking. So many things I want to talk about. Um, I kind of feel like we need to underline that, that, that eating issues, they're not food problems. No. They are coping problems. Yeah. And that the that the focus on the food, and this is you know something that is so difficult sometimes to to get across because I think people it would be easier if it was just about the food. It would be easier if this was just about losing a couple of pounds or dropping a dress size. Yeah. It would be much easier um, to deal with if, if that was the issue because actually dealing with the underlying issue. The, the low self-esteem or the sense of being a failure or the pressure of performance or whatever emotional difficulty is happening underneath, that's really complicated. Yeah. That's scary and maybe it feels overwhelming. Yeah. Maybe you feel like actually other people aren't interested in hearing about those things or certainly there are lots of cases where people can feel like they don't have the right to complain or there's nowhere to complain to. Um, and so in order to manage those difficult, difficult feelings, 
they have to turn to something else which gives them a sense of achievement of uh of something that is um admirable something for which they will be praised and what our environment does very very well uh particularly for women but for more and more people um young men are certainly starting to feel this much more now is to say well if you change your body well that's the way that we're going to praise you that's a shortcut quick fire absolute guaranteed way to get approval from the outside world and so this need for a boost of self-esteem or for approval or for love and validation is concentrated inside the eating problem which concentrates it inside the body and you need to kind of clear through all of that to get to the feelings and that's the work yeah and and i i so want people to hear that yes and to understand that and and one of the things i would certainly say if there's anybody listening to this that if you have an eating problem um, and you've gone to a nutritionist, you certainly, or even nutritionists and nutritional therapists listening to this, that you cannot work in isolation with an eating problem just by focusing on the food. You should absolutely be working alongside some a mental health practitioner. A hundred percent. And I, I make that my practice um, to do so. Um, but equally, as a dietitian or a nutritionist or you know whoever's working in this field, you can't you can't fix somebody through food you have to change their behavior you have to change their mindset you have to get them to understand that this is about the whole of them mm-hmm. and a lot of the work i do is about behavior change so obviously i've read a lot around um eating disorders again i am you know i, I like my practice to be best practice i can do and i've done a lot of short courses in psychology stuff for the bps and um and now I'm again I seem to be a sucker for studying I'm now doing this postgrad at King's in mental health and neuroscience psychology so I like to know how I can make the difference you know this is not just a case of understanding what a healthy diet is and then giving them a nutrition plan it's not going to work you know that's why I suppose if I'm honest I've got um I've got a massive waiting list of people that want to work with me because it's different to that standard approach mm-hmm. um, and I do work alongside lots of psychologists and therapists at the same time because I, I understand where my boundaries are mm-hmm. and I'm not going to go into the, the difficulties around maybe their relationships and the attachments that have created the anxiety or the trauma that they've been through you know I, I have got sadly cases of sexual assault and sexual abuse where they've used again they've used food as a way of coping and and that's not my remit mm-hmm. But my remit is to provide hope. And I think a, I've asked a couple of my clients recently, what was it? What is it that helped you to to trust and, and make those big leaps? Because they're big leaps, you know, kind of changing your mindset, changing how you feel about food and, and challenging your biggest fear, you know. And they said, it's just you gave us hope. You actually gave us hope that we could beat it and we could have a life. And I was thinking, wow. That's great. I mean, I, I, I work as I work. I don't think, oh, I've got to give them hope. That's not how I'm working. But I'm, I'm really, really, it really heartened me to hear that because I think as a practitioner, that's kind of like, that's the most, that is the best praise you can get, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And, and I, I, I feel very, 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 very humbled by that massively. Um, 
but yeah i think it's really you're right kimberly it's so important to realize this is not about food it will they'll always make it about food they'll always bring it back to food they'll always bring it back to body image i had a young girl in clinic yesterday and, and you know she's beautiful absolutely beautiful but she's so fearful of being bigger mm. she's so fearful of not being accepted if she's bigger and and I challenged her on that and I said well where has that come from like you know let's look at yourself you've been a few different weights over the past few years because you've you know you've been very very underweight now you're in the normal zone but prior to being very underweight she was maybe on the higher end of normal she's never been overweight but she was but she was a teenager you know your body changes and um we talked about acceptance. I said, where's that come from? And she, and she sat there and she said, I don't know. Mm. I said, I said, this is the problem with, what, with, with the way you have, the, what you've done is you've made your assumption fact and you've not challenged that fact. You've just, you've just gone, well, that's what it is. If I'm bigger, nobody's going to accept me, nobody's mm. going to love me. And I was like, you know, you've been home for three weeks. Uni, she's a uni student. You've been home for three weeks. Have your friends been in touch? Yeah. Well, there you go. There's absolute proof that mm. you are popular for who you are, not because of what you look like. Mm. And I think it's it's being able to offer individuals that as well. Like, you know, being able to help them to see and to challenge and to question. Um, I had another young girl in my clinic a few weeks ago and obsessed with sugar, as everybody is these days. And it's kind of one of the banes of my life that, you know, sugar... Rolling is, your eyes very hard. Is yeah, <laughs> sugar is bad for you. We should never, we shouldn't eat sugar and, you know, and, and, and it's going to cause obesity. I mean, again, there's no absolute link that sugar causes obesity. We know if you eat anything to excess, you're more at risk of putting on weight and that may cause obesity. But there's no absolute correlation between sugar itself and obesity or sugar itself and diabetes but again being overweight predisposes you to diabetes and we were talking about sugar and she was like but I can't I can't I can't do it it's bad for you it's bad for you I was like well okay here you go here's my laptop you've got 20 minutes you find me the article that tells you you should never eat sugar ever and of course she couldn't do it because there isn't one there is no absolute evidence that you should never eat sugar. Yes, we should all reduce the amount of sugar we eat. We should be mindful of the amount of sugar we eat. But nobody says you should never eat it. Mm. And so it's in this way, I suppose, I try and challenge them and get them to see food in different ways, get them to see themselves in a different way and their body image in a different way so that they can start to to reframe their mindset. And, um, and I think actually very rarely do I sit there and, and give them a nutrition plan and go off you go because it doesn't work right <laughs> it doesn't work and, and again I think it, it that kind of taps into two things that you spoke about earlier on and one is is the rigidity and and the way things become black and white and there's this very interesting way in which you have an overlap of one of the symptoms or the consequences of under eating which is the, the neurological changes which make things very black and white that kind of then matches up with some of the food rules you'll see out in the world which says that eating and nutrition is very black and white that this food is bad and this food is good and so it can almost seem as if the world is confirming your belief that things are this rigid and this narrow and and so you have a a kind of as the practitioner a double whammy of trying to first deal with that person's individual internal psychological framework 
and then also trying to hold at bay some of the unhelpful and unbalanced information that comes in from the outside world. Yeah. I always say that working with eating disorders is, is particularly tricky because you're not just working with the person or the individual circumstances as you might be with, say, a trauma or a depression. You know, you can work with that person and the things that have happened to them or within their family. When you're working with, with eating problems, certainly in the West, I, I don't know if it's different elsewhere, but you're then also working with with competitive school environments, you're working with media, you're working increasingly now with social media and having to help that person separate themselves in their own minds from the messages that they've been given and helping them crucially to challenge these things and to not take things at face value. Yeah. Um, and I, I talk a lot about the need to be critical and to question things more and be a, a bit more rebellious. You know, you know, I'm not talking about graffiti, but be, have a kind of rebellious streak of mind which drives you to question the legitimacy of these authorities and get people to prove their authority and that they have an expert position to be giving you this information that you're so kind of almost blindly following. A hundred percent. And I think my biggest challenge particularly of recent years, has been social media, massively, massively, because it it's there. It's there every day. It's there every minute of every day. You have it on your phone. You have it on your laptop. You, you It's constant. Mm-hmm. And it gives individuals validation to maintain their coping mechanisms. And I think that's, you know, I always describe eating disorder as an extreme behaviour mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, if you have, like you have... Um, say a mountaineer who is determined to get to the top of Everest regardless of the fact they've got altitude sickness or they've got frostbite, uh, frostbite or whatever they're still going to do it and and to a detriment to their health because it's such an extreme behavior to do that it's so important for them they'll lose their family whatever it's just so important in the same way somebody with an eating disorder will do everything in their power to maintain their eating disorder because for whatever reason it makes them feel safe mm. it empowers them you know i've had i've had individuals say to me but i feel more powerful when i'm hungry mm. because i've controlled my natural instinct and i just say let's just talk about that again you've just controlled your natural instinct to be hungry how is that good and again, they haven't questioned it, but when you do it in that clinical mm. setting, they're like, yeah, that doesn't really make any sense, does it's it? Extraord- <laughs> it's an extraordinary state of mind, isn't it? And, and and I think we have to think about this word safety because that does become so pervasive. We have safe food, safe food lists, safe behaviours, things that make having eaten an unsafe food safe again, like excess exercise or, exactly. or going for a long time without food or waiting till you're almost to the point of fating with, with hunger before you're allowed to eat. Um, and and so I think there's something very interesting about this word safety. And then we then have to question, well, why do you feel unsafe? Yeah. What's going on that makes you feel like you're not safe or that you feel vulnerable, that you need to do all of these dangerous, harmful things to make you feel safe? And I think, I'm sure there's a, a lot of things that factor into this. and. One of them, I'm sure, has to be how resilient we are as individuals and how able we are to tolerate change and failure and 
uh, a sense of being confused. You know, can we tolerate being a bit confused for for a while, not knowing what we want to do or quite who we are or what's expected of us? Can we bear that without then having to automatically feel like we have to come up with an answer or come up with the goods? Because safety is about a need for certainty in a world which inevitably is uncertain. Yeah, and I think that's it. You've hit the, you know, you've really hit the nail on the head. It's really about people being anxious about the uncertainty of what comes next. But you know what? None of us know what comes next. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And actually, I had my own personal experience of feeling very anxious, very unsafe, very, I guess the only way I could describe it was free fall. Like mm. I really struggled. I mean, I, my, um, my marriage broke down sort of 18 months ago. And um, during the course of kind of the end of 2016 and most of 2017, I found myself really, really confused about what what I was feeling and it was very uncomfortable and my my I, I associated it with with this anxiety like I felt very very uncomfortable in myself mm. um, and I I think it was really difficult for me to to ever really kind of rest comfortably and I'm not saying I went out and did loads of running because I didn't and I can't because I actually have an autoimmune condition which means I can't go and do all sorts of things like that but I felt I can I can really understand the agitation that people feel when they they can't rest something's not right I mean I'm sort of sitting here doing this now with you but you just feel really uncomfortable you'll regurgitate conversations you'll you'll think about you always see yourself in a negative light rather than be able to challenge those intrusive thoughts and 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 I and I'm, I mean I'm in a much better place now than I was even six months ago but and but I think even now I still have days where I doubt myself mm-hmm. I think that's human and I think it's okay to have those days and I accept that some days I feel rubbish and some days actually it doesn't quite pan out how I'd hoped it would pan out and some days I still go to bed 
tearful and go and cry but I allow myself to cry because it's such an important part and I think when I came in the, the first thing I said to you was that your podcast about grief came at such a poignant moment for me because it literally was the time where I was probably at my most heightened grief and I re-listened to it a couple of days ago because again just to kind of clarify in my mind that I wasn't going mad and it was okay to feel loss and it was okay to feel sadness and it was okay to be fearful of what might come next but you don't have to act on any of it that's what I really took away from it is that you're allowed to have these emotions you're allowed to feel unsafe if that's what we, the term mm-hmm. we're going to use mm. but actually you don't have to act on any of it and you know I think I gave you the story of um my book signing last November the orthorexia book signing and you know so you have your photo taken and I'm not great with the camera anyway but you have your photo taken and I remember the next day I was looking at the photos that a few friends had sent me and 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 the publishing company sent me and I was like oh god I look dreadful and I literally that's all I could think of was I look dreadful and I don't act on any of it I don't try and change myself and I'm like oh god I look dreadful Mm -hmm. and it's really funny because obviously we're doing this event in a a few weeks time and you asked me for an image and I sent you that image and it's six months later and I thought oh that's a nice image of me and that's and that's how Mm -hmm. it can change when you're in a place where you feel uncomfortable with yourself you will see everything negative about yourself and yet six months later where I've I've you know I've kind of worked on myself I've realized I needed time I've realized I needed to let myself go at times and be okay with being sad and and all those different things I now see that image and I think actually it's a really lovely image it's captured exactly who I am you know I'm smiling I'm happy and and that's how I am Mm. normally and I think I think it's really important to acknowledge that nobody's immune to feeling bad about themselves or perception you are going to have those times where you doubt and where you don't feel good enough and and again I think you know a lot of the people I work with some of them have obviously researched me before they come and work with me and and they put you on a bit of a pedestal and I'm like no no I'm just me like I have problems I'm not perfect in any form or manner and I I I I'm like you, just meandering, <laughs> navigating <laughs> my way, around exactly, trying to find my way through, and 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 you know, don't let me, don't, don't think that I've got it all sus because I haven't. You yeah. know, I think that that photo story is a perfect kind of encapsulation of the difference that state of mind can make to a state of or a perceived state of body. So the only thing that changed there was how you were feeling. Completely. I was exactly the same person, exactly the same size. My weight never changes. It's so I've kind of been, you know, I'm one of these people that just is very good at regulating what I eat and my weight has been pretty much the same for 20 years, you know, it just is. And I'm I can still wear the same outfit. It's it's nothing has changed apart from my mental state and that's it. And it's so and so much of our emotional worlds get lodged in the body and you you said I don't know where these ideas come from well I think we do know where they come from and we have this idea that's given to us that we need to be certain Mm. that we need to be sure like do you have the answer why don't you have the answer are you just not smart enough to have the answer there's this real pressure to to fake it till you make it if you're yeah. not sure act like you're sure and if you're not sure why aren't you sure you haven't you done the work it's it's an in, incredible amount of of um pressure and weight put on on these things and 
even to the point where we're told that we all need to have our own personal brand you know and yeah <laughs> and brands are by definition flawless they are they stand for one thing they are fixed and they are unchanging which is absolutely the opposite to what a human is completely 100% and and you know the one thing I will the one something I say to some of my clients is you know you're going to feel different every day our emotions are a bit like the sky you know some days you look at the sky and it's bright blue and it's hopeful and and you feel you know you feel this sense of excitement because it's beautiful and you want to be outside and then literally six hours later it could be gray with clouds coming in and 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 but it's constantly moving the Mm. sky's constantly moving and that's kind of who we are we're constantly moving and it's being able to you know, not act on every single thought that comes into your mind because some thoughts are not going to be very helpful. And that's kind of how I live my life now in that as much as I possibly can, I know intrusive thoughts come in every day, but sometimes I just go, do you know what? I'm not going to, just going to leave it there because I don't need to act on it. Mm. It's there, I can see it, but I don't need to act on it. I feel like I should probably do a little... um series called am i normal because (laughs) people worry about all of these things that that their brains do which are a bit weird which might make them not normal and and intrusive thoughts is one of them everyone gets intrusive thoughts everyone gets weird ideas that pop up from their minds or somewhere deep deep down in their minds that doesn't seem to make any rational sense and the only time that that becomes a problem is if you take it to mean something Mm negative or problematic about you or you feel compelled to act on it that's when we start to be concerned perhaps about that person's state of mind but the fact that you get the odd weird thought is absolutely the brain is just a kind of mass of of chemistry and exactly. <laughs> it's, it's, it's just absorbing constantly isn't it like you're surrounding it's kind of absorbing everything from surrounding and trying to make sense of it all and and sometimes it doesn't make sense and, and it's very and then like when i say to people you know your thoughts are your feelings and your thoughts quite abstract they're not real you don't you don't have to believe them mm-hmm. you know if your thoughts telling you that you're you, you know you're fat why are you believing that because the evidence is right here you mm-hmm. are underweight on the scale that's evidence mm-hmm. that's what you need to be looking at you know i had a, a similar situation where when i Again, I suppose it's, it's, it kind of ties in with orthorexia because it's actually, it was, while I really am so proud of orthorexia, it's probably, you know, the, the book I've been most proud of for various reasons. One, because I think it really has raised awareness. I know that um, it's it's had really positive reviews and people have learned a lot from it. And I've had people contact me saying, thank you for writing the book. And that is just enough, you know. But equally, I wrote it in a time which was very, very difficult for me. So it was a challenge. It was really hard work. Mm. Um, and, and and I think because of that, I put so much of myself into it um, that you want it to be as well received as you possibly can. And I remember the first, the first couple of weeks of it being out, um, I don't do this anymore, but stupidly, I used to look on Amazon at the reviews and there was one person that wrote a really bad review and that's the only thing I could home in on. Mm. And I thought, oh my God, oh my God. They and, I, and I thought, no, hang on a minute. Let's just look at the evidence, right? You are being asked to do all these amazing things because you're good at what you do. You have got clients because of what you do. 
you have written a book that is based on science and you know that because you know how much work went into it there is nothing wrong with you and it was but mm. i've got that resilience and that ability to do that whereas a lot of people don't mm. a lot of people take that negative criticism and then turn it onto themselves and that's where the kind of you know that kind of punishing regimens of exercise or punishing regimens of, of eating and not being allowed things you know punishing yourself and not being good enough that's where it will come not being worthy enough of mm. taking care of yourself and I do a lot of work I mean anybody who follows me on Instagram will know I do a lot of work on self-compassion and self-care and really looking after yourself because you know what no one else is going to you are <laughs> responsible for your own care mm. Um, you can, you know, people obviously will care about you, your friends and your family do, but the only person that can really, really take care of you is you, because you're the only one that really knows what's going on for you. What your needs are. Exactly. How do, because I think self-compassion is essential, <laughs> I think it's an absolutely essential quality and it should be enjoyable, um, you should like taking care of yourself, but as I said on a, a recent panel that I was on, the in order to be able to do self-care you need to have a belief that you have a self worth caring for 100 percent. um and so that can be one of the challenges to self-care but one of the other challenges to self-care which i've noticed is that people liken it or assume that it's it's some kind of weakness i don't know if you ever come across that with your athletes but the, there's this belief that if you're nice to yourself i.e. not punishing of yourself, not critical of yourself, not harsh on yourself, that somehow you'll lose your edge yeah. or you're, you're not being competitive enough or yeah. you're just giving yourself excuses. Or you're soft. Mm. That's, I mean, that's a big thing. You know, why should I care? You know, why should I give myself self-care? What, what do you mean? I, I don't want to be vulnerable. You know, I don't, don't, and it's not, and I always say it's not really about being vulnerable. It's actually about realising that you need to give your body time off you need to give your body time to recover mm. and and you need to you need i find that if you can help someone to work out what self-care means for them because mm -hmm. also it's different for everybody you know if you can work out so with a lot of anorexic clients i have it's about you know they can't sit still they have to keep moving they can't watch a film they can't watch a box set they can't chill and it's like, would you like to? Yeah, of course I'd like to. Okay, well, this is what we have to work on. Let's just start with 10 minutes a day in terms of just helping you to start realising that nothing awful is going to happen. Mm. And actually, what's the positive association with just sitting still for a bit and actually being able to engage in something different? Mm. Um, and what I found with a couple of my clients is that through the self-care practices that were built up very, very slowly over a course of you know three to six months, they start to believe they are worthy because they've actually gone, actually, I, I do deserve to watch film. I, I do. I'm, I'm okay to do this. And and so you're right. You, you do need a self-worth to be able to self-care. But equally, I think one can come mm -hmm. from the other. Not always. Mm -hmm. Absolutely not always. But I think one can come from the other. But, it's, but it does depend on where the person's starting. Yeah. I think what happens, kind of coming back to this idea of, deserving self-care is that we have got into a habit a cultural habit of treating ourselves not as individuals but as kind of functional units that are there to perform a task and I think it starts really early I think it starts with 
with children being hothoused to get good grades at the age of nine and 11 and then again at 12 and 13 and then you know all of the focus being on your output your yeah. performance like yeah. you're only as good as your last grades <laughs> basically um and then that leads on to you know if you go to college or university then you're only as good as your final your final grade or yeah. your final result if you go into work then you're up you need your own personal brand and you're only as good as your last sale or your, you know and there's this constant reiteration that you're only as good as your output and and people will say to me um when they say well no i shouldn't and this and it breaks my heart um i shouldn't enjoy food it shouldn't be pleasurable it's bad for it to just be pleasurable it's just fuel and what that says to me is that wow you look at yourself only as a unit of 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 performance yeah. you're only looking at yourself as someone who is able to do a thing or make something or come up with the goods yeah absolutely and i think i think you're so right i mean you know we say i always say you know food is more than just fuel Food is about relationships. It's about it's about time. It's about tastes. It's about flavors. It's about environments. It's it's so important. I mean, for me, the best time is when I'm sat around a table with my friends or my daughters, and we've you know we're just we're just having conversations. It doesn't matter what's on the table. It could be beans on toast, but it's just the conversations of hearing how everybody is and the excitement and you know what's going on for that person today and and. And what what was their experience at school or whatever it is you know whatever we're talking about and I just I f- I find that really sad when I when I'm working with the people that's the bit that I think like you breaks my heart is that they can't enjoy that sense of peace and opportunity mm-hmm. that comes with being part of a table you know eating around a table trying new flavors I find that very that for me really does really gets me because I love food and I. You know, my I grew up. You know, my mom, my mum and dad are Indian, and my mom's an amazing cook. And Indian families, everything rotates around food. <laughs> so you know, there was there was never going to be an issue for me. It was always going to be something that you you enjoyed, and you know, and and food is food is so important. Feeding us was so important, <laughs> yeah, um, which maybe has their equation. other issues. But anyway, sure. we won't go there. Um, but um, I think. Yeah, I do find that I find that quite hard. Mm. That's the bit of my job, actually, of all of it. That's the bit I find quite sad. Mm. Um, and you're right. You know, the whole I wrote a blog recently about the drive for success and how that drive, that constant need to be successful. But what is success? I mean, who who is it can define success? I mean, people say to me, "Oh, you're really successful. You went to Rio and you've worked in you know London 2012." And I'm like, "That's not success for me. For me, I define my personal success." was when I've managed to help someone get a better quality of life. That doesn't mean they've restored weight, but when they turn around and say to me, and I'll never forget this, it's brilliant, My one of my athletes, and she had real problems, and she said to me, she said, Rini, I can now eat pizza at one o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. I just thought, do you know what? That's success. That is success to me. And so I think success is a very difficult, very kind of, you have to be very careful about how you use it, but I think, People do think you've made it if you've got an achievement, if you've got a medal, or you've got a, a, a name or a brand, as you've said. But actually, for me, success is about personal, little tiny little 
baby steps and goals that I've helped someone to to get mm. to. Um, and and I think when you when you're in pressurized environments, and it doesn't necessarily have to be sport. It could be you know you're a young graduate in a big corporate company. I've seen this a lot. I'm getting more and more uh, graduates who are in this environment who feel like under so much pressure to perform and get sales and and be acknowledged and they don't get any feedback so they don't think they're doing good enough because they don't feel like they're doing good enough and then that becomes a dysfunctional relationship with Mm. food and and I think the bit that people don't understand is that it's not just about restricting your food intake it's not just about losing weight it's actually about those hormonal issues, biochemical processes that become effective that can then have a massive long-term effect on your mm-hmm. health. I mean, the biggest, the key one is, is you know, if you start to under-eat, your weight doesn't have to drop, you just start to under-eat, your energy availability is too low for the amount of walking around you're doing, whether that's exercise or whether that's just walking around, or you don't eat a balanced diet, you will start to have a negative impact on your sex hormones. So estrogen will become affected, luteinizing hormone will become affected. And these play a really important part, obviously for women in terms of menstruation. For men, they play a big part, luteinizing hormone and testosterone for libido. You know, these are big, big, important hormones. Mm. There are fertility hormones. And in women, estrogen and in men, testosterone are also really, really important from a bone health point of view. If they drop, you do have negative consequences of to your bone health. Mm-hmm. And I've lost count now, and, it, and again, I should probably do the figures, but I've got several, several hundred probably now in the, in the time I've been working as a, as a dietitian, um, youngsters under the age of 25 who've been diagnosed with osteoporosis. And, and osteoporosis, it, well, I, we're always told it's an old, it's an old person's disease. Yeah. Um, do you want to describe what it is? So basically, osteoporosis—you're exactly, you know, exactly right. It's often associated with, with old, the older generation. It's basically we all we all build our bone density to a point, and then we get to sort of late twenties, early thirties, we all start to lose bone density. Now there are things you can do to to reduce the amount of bone density you lose, but ultimately you will lose bone density. So if you've not built it up properly in the first place. You may, you are likely to get to a point in your old age where your bones become very brittle, and if you fall, you tend to have a break, or you're more risk of fractures. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm seeing this in 25 year olds because they are not having periods or testosterone levels are very, very low. Um, for it, only really needs to be. You only really need to miss three consecutive periods to start to really have an impact. Now, really? it doesn't. In some people. Sure, I didn't realize it. I mean, it's worth yeah. saying that at least. Yeah, it doesn't in some people, but that's all it is. So again, I have, and this makes me sad, I've had girls come in and say, yeah, but when I, if I have a period, it means I'm fat. And I have no idea where that's come from. Let, well, I, you just made me think because there was a, um, there was a blogger. It makes me so furious. There's a, a food blogger. She's a vegan food blogger. I'm going to probably probably best not to name her I'll check the legal team (laughs) but her she put out a message that said that it should be really an aim to have lighter or non-existent periods because periods are a sign of toxins in your body so if you don't have your periods wow you're 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 pure 
Right. And and what about if you want to have children and you want to have a baby and the bone? I mean, this is it. This is what winds me up about, and I can hear my voice. <laughs> no, well, it winds me up about bloggers. You know, I deal with the consequences. And when I was at Cheltenham, this was the thing that really upset me. It was when I was at Cheltenham, and obviously that's where orthorexia started. Um, and I was on stage, and I can say who I was on stage with because it's, it's very well known, but I was on stage with B. Wilson and um, Madeline Shaw, and I was asked to join part of the clean eating debate as the panel and I was literally brought in as as the scientist so I was the unknown nobody knew who I was um <laughs> but I was brought in as the scientist and um and it's the first time I met B, and and, and actually I'm so and B and I are really good friends now and it's lovely she's she was very very supportive of everything I do have to say this was literally three weeks after I separated from my husband so I was feeling incredibly vulnerable on stage mm. and it was a a room full of about three four hundred people gosh and they'd all come to see Madeline, to be fair. Um, and I think, I don't really know what really went wrong. Probably B's written about it lots of times. And I think I think it was just one of those situations that was probably just not managed very, very well. But obviously we started off the, the evening with, you know, a definition of what clean eating was and, and why it was a problem. And, um, you know, I've got a real problem with the term clean eating because it feels like if you do anything that doesn't sort of fit in with that description then somehow you're eating dirty or you're Mm. not pure enough or you're not good enough you know it kind of fits in with that and I was seeing more and more clients come into clinic with with these kind of behaviors and thoughts um and B was very good at kind of sort of agreeing with me and and finds equally as 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 a problematic and also we, we were talking to Madeline because she had written the book at the time I think it's called Look at the glow. Something, something like that. Else. Yeah, something like this. And and she'd written and, and very clearly stated in her book about clean cuts of meat, clean cuts of protein, not eating grains, not eating carbs. Um, actually, the bit, the, the one statement that really got me in the book was about, um, you know, don't feel you should go out and don't feel under pressure by your friends to eat what they're all eating you know you don't need to feel guilty about the fact that you've chosen to eat really really healthily you know that was kind of the the statement and so we were basically just challenging Madeline saying you know these this is and she goes oh but I don't believe in all this and I'm like but it's here it's in your book we're reading from your book it's here and I guess she just didn't know what to say to that she didn't know how to handle that and she burst into tears on stage which obviously was awful for all of us Mm. But unfortunately, the the um, the audience just turned on B and I, and we got really like really badly treated. You know, we were heckled, we were called all sorts of names. I mean, Twitter went into complete explosion. I think afterwards, my my phone didn't stop beeping for about three days, and um, it was just an incredibly frightening experience. Is I have to say that word. I felt very very like almost like a rabbit in headlights and thank god I had my closest friends in the audience with me I don't think I I was shaking for three hours afterwards because of the way in which we were targeted and all I said in the end was you know what all I have done here is brought your attention to science Mm -hmm. I am not able I am not allowed as a dietitian to make up nutrition 
I have to be, I have to base my advice on scientific evidence and rationale. Now, I appreciate that it does seem like nutrition science is constantly changing, but actually, you know what? It's not. If you look at the fundamentals, it's not. It's not changing. It's not changing. No, it hasn't. It's exactly the same as it always has been, with a few tweaks here and there because we're evolving, you know? And I said, I said, I just feel really sad that. Actually, you know what, Madeline, what you don't understand is I don't have any doubt that what you've written is full of good intention. Mm -hmm. I'm sure it is. Mm -hmm. I don't think you've written to be malice or any of those things. But what you don't see is what I pick up in clinic. And I said, if you come and spend just one day, one hour with me in clinic and you will see the negative impact what you do has on young, vulnerable people not even young just vulnerable individuals who are looking for an answer to make themselves feel better well that was absolutely the motivation behind calling in the reinforcements for the conference yes (laughs) yes that and it's it's absolutely as you say it's about the consequences that you can anyone can set up a an Instagram account or set up a blog and put out information that perhaps you've read somewhere else or perhaps you just think is intuitively right and and just put it out there and you never see because there are two things that happen on what you get the praise and the adulation and I was talking just yesterday to Pixie Turner about this and she kind of had her own experience in wellness and kind of coming out of it Um, and she speaks about what she loved about it was the 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 admiration that she received and the praise and the validation and the confirmation of people saying oh you're so healthy it's so amazing and that's all very compelling um so the blogger sees that part of it what they don't see is what the clinicians see Mm. is what the professionals see which is people terrified of eating people so scared of veering off what they believe or have been told is the perfect track or the right track or the healthiest way or the best way to the point where they are secluded in their own rooms just eating vegetables yeah and unable to take part in the rest of their lives and it's devastating because invariably we're talking about bright talented people full of incredible potential and life and vibrancy and have so many opportunities to be doing wonderful things but they're so terrified of food that it keeps them absolutely paralyzed in their lives and yeah I kind of get emotional talking about it because it feels like it's such a tragedy yeah and it's such a waste of wonderful energy and potential and it's so unfair and I feel like you know professionals those of us who are held to codes of ethics and conduct yeah those of us who have a professional body who oversees the work that we do those of us whom if our work isn't up to scratch lose our reputations might lose our jobs yeah we have to be so careful about the information that we put out. Whenever I put out a piece of scientific research or make a statement, I always put my references in. I'm not asking anybody to take my word for it. Check it out for yourself. I have to be that careful and that accountable. We all do. But you don't if you're a kind of freelance, off-the-cuff lifestyle blogger. And there's a, a real imbalance there yeah. in, in power, I think, um, in reach and in influence and so the conference which I'll, I'll put links in is called uh, wellness what's the evidence the conference is about 
bringing together professionals and clinicians who have frontline expertise in these things, in nutrition, in, in well, we've got some media people in there as well to understand how the media portrays wellness. Um, I'll be talking about our psychological relationship with food because there are outcomes, there are consequences and there is fallout of all of this stuff. And it's, it, I think it's about time that people really were aware of that. Yeah, I mean, I obviously, like I said, I, I see... I look at the overall long-term health of an individual. You know, we've, we've touched on the bone health issue, and you know, a lot of a lot of these 25, 20, 26 year olds, you know, if we can if we can change their mindset before they hit their thirties, we may get a reverse in the condition. But if we don't, then they are stuck with osteoporosis for the rest of their lives, which means they're at a higher risk of stress fractures. You know, they'll. I've got a, a beautiful, beautiful young lady I work with, and I love her to pieces. I really do. I've worked with her for eighteen months now, and she she turned thirty in December, and no, in January, sorry, and um, she was running for her bus after her night out for her birthday, tripped on a curve, fell, and. And, and basically fractured her hip and her pelvis. She's been out of action now for three months. And it was that that really dawned on her just what the impact has had mm. on her um, on her health. Mm. And I'm not, I really didn't want her to go through that to have to see what her eating behaviours have done mm. to her body. But this is the reality of what can happen. I mean, that's one thing. You know, bone health is one thing. You'll see all sorts of biochemical changes. So, you know, things like your your leptin levels, which is the, the hormone that's so important for regulating weight and regulating your appetite, becomes completely dysfunctional. Mm-hmm. And and it's and, and that's actually quite a, an important one because when people are recovering and restoring, that's the one that needs to get back into a uh, into a normal zone in order to help them understand that they're not going to continue to eat to excess mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. it does stay low to start with because it's basically saying there's not enough energy in this system mm-hmm. and when it's low it's sending signals to the brain saying i need more energy so i'm going to really slow down all these processes in the body to maintain to preserve as much energy as i can so we can keep the heart pumping you know we can keep the brain functioning as best we can mm-hmm. that's that's what it's doing and you know, there's 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 all these different kind of com- these different aspects of the body that are not even discussed. Yeah, yeah. I'll make a special appeal for the brain. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Because it's the brain is, is so it's so it's so neglected. I think, and and I think one of the reasons is because it's invisible. You know, we can't mm. take brain selfies, so it's much less of an attractive idea to eat for your brain's health, and so people. Are much more um, compelled or motivated to eat for for a physical aesthetic or physical health, what they believe is physical health. But in these restrictive diets, I mean, your brain needs you know, about a quarter of your daily yeah. calories to function. That's yeah. a massive need, you know. And if you're restricting your body, you are restricting your brain fundamentally. And that has long-term consequences. This is, again, I'm thinking about what is your risk of dementia? What is your risk of depression? Are you increasing the likelihood of having anxiety? Are you increasing your risk of mental illnesses because you're so undernourished? Yeah. Because you're so limited on the kind of food, the kinds of foods that you will allow yourself that 
you've been told or you believe are, are healthy for your body but are completely neglecting the completely. needs of your brain. Yeah, the brain, I mean, the brain needs 120 to 130 grams of glucose a day. Now that has to come from breaking down carbohydrate, you know, and then all these low, low carb diets, they have a real negative impact on how the brain works. Mm. You know, low, again, low carbohydrate diets have a negative impact on the digestive system. Mm. Nothing, you know, that's why there is, I mean, there is no, a fad is never going to work because it's going to affect something else. So you might, you might take on low carb, high fat because you've heard it's good for weight loss or you've heard it's good for your performance, but you've got to think about the long-term health. And I've got loads of athletes that have done low carb, high fat because they've read somewhere that some athletes done it and, and it's made them a better, you know, better performer. Mm -hmm. And they're coming into clinic now. They've got like really high cortisol levels completely deranged thyroid function um they've got um real problems with their their sex hormones their immune system is depressed and they've got real real elevated heart um heart rate variability because they are they're in a mess because they've basically put their body into stress stress. and and the, the difficulty is that yes when somebody starts something new it doesn't always immediately have that negative impact. It tends to, unfortunately, have a positive impact to start with. Mm-hmm. And it's only sort of 6, 12, maybe 18 months down the line that you really start to see that real mm-hmm. negative impact. I have lost count now of the number of cyclists, triathletes, runners um, who, who come to clinic and they're all saying, I feel dreadful, I feel dreadful. And it's like, okay, well, let's look at what you're eating. And they're all under-consuming calories because they're all fixated on a, on a race weight. Um, they're all under-consuming carbohydrate because they don't believe it's necessary unless you're training at a particular level. Mm-hmm. You know, they, 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 they've picked, they've cherry-picked the evidence, and I put that in inverted commas, they've cherry-picked what they want to read because they're trying to validate their behaviours mm. because they want to improve their performance. Fundamentally, the reason they're doing it is because they want to be the very best they can. But obviously, there's a price to pay, yeah. and, and and I think that's really important. Yeah. I think it's what's really interesting is how those de- those effects can be delayed so that it's not as easy to trace it back to the original yeah. change. And and you'll get that with elimination diets that people will well. I, initially, I felt really good. Well, that was probably what well, partly placebo effect. Yeah. Partly because perhaps you started eating more vegetables in the exactly. first place. Yes. And it's the vegetable intake that's made the difference rather than the restriction on grains or whatever it might be. Um, but now those deficiencies have accumulated to such a level that now we're starting to see the symptomology. Now we're starting to see the problems. And the irony of that is, is that, for example, if they're, I'm you know, thinking particularly about the brain health, so if their B vitamins are so low that it's starting to affect their mood, they'll assume that it's something to do with a food that they are eating so yeah. oh I, I'm not restricting enough maybe it's because I left the dairy in and I should cut that out and I'll feel better and actually it's just exacerbating yeah. the problem <sighs> we've covered a lot <laughs> we have and we haven't even got to the book so let's get to the book so you've written a book called Orthorexia when healthy eating goes bad now what prompted you to write the book well to be honest um, I've always wanted to write a book on eating disorders particularly because I'm seeing so much of it um, and my publishing company Watkins um, were very were very supportive of that but they they were like well we just need to think about how what what's going to be the best 
uh, use of a, of a book on eating disorders. And actually, basically, once I went to Cheltenham and had that um, incident with uh, Madeleine Shaw, pretty much literally the next day, my uh, publicist was on the phone, right, we know what we're writing about. Um, and and that was where orthorexia was born. Um, and, and to be honest, it was one I had to do quite a lot of research on because I've been very much involved with anorexia, bulimia, um, and they've been the main kind of... Um, eating disorders I've worked with and orthorex is a very new term mm. you know it's 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 not even a diagnosable condition yet so it, it was you know brought into kind of into our our minds and our, our kind of views from a, an MD in um, America called Steve Bratman and and he was basically seeing he's he's not even a psychology he's not a psychology he's not even into really interested in nutrition he was just a physician and he kept seeing this this phenomenon of people coming in being mm. kind of obsessed with being pure and and eating in a certain way and it all being very kind of you know either very raw or very kind of um i suppose uh depleted of 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 some food group you know and 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 he he coined the term orthorexia because obviously in greek that basically translates as eating correctly but as i said it's it's no it's at the moment it's not a diagnosable condition so it's not something that we can see in the in the dsm-5 like anorexia and, and bulimia um, and there's an international task force that's been put together, and I'm very honoured to say that I've been asked to be on that, which was uh, a massive, you know, massive honour. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was in Rome, and we were presenting as a kind of as a group to the European Society of Eating Disorders um, about the Orthorexia Task Force and what our job is and how we're going to move it forward um, and I was asked to come in as the, the the UK expert on orthorexia which I think I don't know if I can say I am but um, again I was very humbled to be to be kind of promoted as that um, and asked to really talk about social media driven orthorexia in, in particular but the in the conversations we've had around how we make this a diagnosable condition is really interesting because you know we're, we're still kind of working out where the overlap is with the other eating disorders um, and it's definitely an agreement that is definitely an obsessive, compulsive disorder of some description. Mm-hmm. We don't feel like it's going to be a subgroup of anorexia, which was initially pre- potentially kind of suggested. Mm-hmm. It feels very different to anorexia. It's not it's not driven in the same way, um, but definitely definitely around the compulsive obsessive. Um, but we know that orthorexia can come in many forms and and, and means. And there was a one of the the other members. Um, Maximus, he presented actually his case that was of orthorexia in a small child where the parents were very, very strict vegan and they brought the baby up vegan and this baby was then presented as a medical case to him because it was very, very poorly and it wasn't growing and it had many chronic deficiencies and it was because of this very strict vegan Mm. vegan diet. Um, and this was a case in Italy, and in, and and sadly, in this case, the parents were were then kind of served with neglect because they had neglected the needs of this child. Um, so orthorexia can come in many many ways. You know, it's a very kind of obsessive need to be pure and nothing, nothing unpure. But you have to kind of take that as a, a bit of pinch of salt because. It, in the people that have orthorexia, pure is 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 extreme, mm, you know, mm. um, and and it's their beliefs around what's pure, and you know, I'm sure. I mean, we, we've 
we could sit here all day talking about about this but you know even the, the term processed I mean what's mm. processed you know like so many things could be processed yeah. but actually they're not so it's a very difficult um, it's a very difficult illness yeah. and it does cause a lot of psychological anxiety which I'm sure you've seen in your clinic and practice um, but equally it does cause a lot of chronic nutritional deficiencies so again it's one of those that needs to be worked together mm. in a multidisciplinary type approach yeah no, absolutely and um, I think perhaps it might be useful for for listeners if, uh, to hear exactly what the criteria are yeah Should I yeah you go out? for it Kimberly yeah okay so on page 10 and 11 of the book everybody <laughs> um, it goes through what it is body image uh, indications and physical symptoms so what is it orthorexia nervosa is an obsessive adherence to an increasingly restrictive or clean diet it involves restricting food intake based on the perception of the purity of ingredients and may also include excessive exercising in terms of body image Weight loss is often less pronounced than in anorexia, and the sufferer similarly cannot assess body shape or weight objectively. There is a distorted body image and a focus on skin quality or glow, um, a sense of luminescence or perfection, as well as tone and body size. And in terms of the physical symptoms, actually, people with orthorexia tend to have a body mass which is normal for their age and height. But restrictions in impure foods mean that certain food groups are removed, and that might be carbohydrates or gluten or dairy, going raw or whatever that might be, without medical reason, which is an important point. And dietary restriction may result in nutritional deficiencies, which can manifest in loss of menstruation, fatigue, headaches, anemia, digestive issues, and halitosis in certain cases. So perhaps we're talking there about gut issues yes. and digestive problems. Yeah. So perhaps that's kind of useful for people because what I'm also increasingly aware of is that it's so there's a huge amount of validation for dietary restriction in media and social media that perhaps people won't be aware that their food is veer or their relationship with food is veering towards something which is unhealthy oh completely and I think I mean you know the biggest one and I'll be very careful about what I say because I don't I always get um, mobbed when I make this comment but you know simple things like any any type of diet any type of food restriction that is a disguise you know so mm. so the most common one I've seen is this increase in veganism mm. now don't get me wrong please don't kill me please don't shout at me I have no issue with people being vegan I'm a vegetarian myself I have no problem with people being vegan but there are vegans that are very balanced and then there are vegans that are orthorexic yeah. and I think that's very very important to make that mm. clear distinction between the two groups and I think there are many people who are coming out quite recently you know like Laura yeah. Dennison from um, not plant-based she's been very open about the fact that yeah she went vegan as a means of restriction it gave her a reason mm. to avoid food groups it gave her a reason to be almost faddy when she went out with her friends it gave her a reason to go oh no I can't eat there because you know it doesn't do vegan food yeah. but there's there's a difference when you know like you can eat a really really good balanced diet you can get all the nutrients you need apart from B12 and um, vitamin D that you do need to supplement, but you can get really balanced diet if you're eating grains and you're, you know, it doesn't mean you can't eat things with sugar in it. It doesn't mean you can't have um, 
carbohydrates. It doesn't, you know, this is this is where it doesn't mean you can't you can't have soya. So people are avoiding soya and go for things like almond milk and oat milk, which, you know, again, that's fine. If you prefer the taste, fine. But do not think by supplementing your diet with almond milk, you're going to get the same nutrition as you would with cow's milk or soya milk because you will not Mm -hmm. you won't get the same amount of protein you won't get the same amount of carbohydrate some almond milk is now supplemented with 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 calcium so you might get some of that but you won't it won't be the same and i think that's the bit i really want people to understand is that you might think you're being healthy because you're following um a type of eating pattern that is seems validated but actually, if it is, if you know deep down it's because you're fearful mm. of eating certain food groups or you're trying to avoid eating certain food groups or you're trying to give yourself a, a legitimate reason that you shouldn't be eating with friends or social environments or whatever, mm. then that's a problem. And that's a real problem. Mm. No, I think you've stated that very, very clearly. And I think the one of the challenges is that the alternative to restrictive and uh, exclusive or exclusionary diets is the very boring moderation. Oh, yes. <laughs> and the idea of balance. And you say it really beautifully <laughs> here in the book, which I think is so important that it needs to be underlined, that moderation is hard. Yeah. Like, and, and I think that's, it's, it's such a, it's seemingly small, but so such a profound comment because it is holding a balance somewhere in the middle between two extreme points is really difficult and it's also not the same for everyone moderation is individual you know if you're somebody that is doing you know you're cycling to and from work every day or you're you do you know you go to the gym five times a week compared with somebody who just sits at their desk nothing wrong with any of those options but your moderation is going to be different if you're sat at a desk all day long compared with somebody who's commuting you know 20 30 miles on their bike every day and and that's that's the thing that people have to there is no one size fits all but food should not create anxiety and i think that's the biggest thing for me is when you can't deviate from your rules ever when you can't go out and have a pizza with a friend you haven't seen for years and years and years because your food rules dictate that something awful is going to happen if you do then you've got a problem and i think that's kind of that's when orthorexia becomes a problem so you know i have gone i mean i'm a dietitian i eat really healthily but i also eat chocolate and we've already talked about my <laughs> obsession with croissants um and and i eat and i and, and i don't restrict myself of anything i, I like food um and like anybody else if i've had a few days where maybe i've eaten too many croissants then I might have a few days where I increase my intake of fruit and veg to kind of get that balance get that moderation Mm -hmm. but what I won't do is not I won't ever sort of go well I can't eat that because something awful might happen you know feel guilty about those no why should I because I'm human and we've got one life and actually why shouldn't we enjoy it you know that's kind of really important so when I suppose the final point I would say on this is when food becomes an anxiety something that you're fearful of, something that causes you guilt, something that makes you feel uncomfortable, then I think you do have issues and you need to be really honest with yourself about about the fact that you probably do have some sort of underlying concerns that need to be addressed. And you know what? Get help because there is help out there um, and it's, it's important that you don't let it go too extreme. 
I think that's a really perfect place to end that. Thank you so much. No problem. <laughs> really, if people want to find you uh, on social media, can they and where can they find you? <laughs> they can. Um, I do have social media. I'm on um, Instagram and Twitter. Uh, and now you're going to put me on the spot because I can never remember my handles because I will I've put the links <laughs> in. <laughs> that's fine. Um, or I do have a website, which is readingmcgregor.com. Fantastic. Um, the book is called Orthorexia, When Healthy Eating Goes Bad. And if you listen to this before the end of April, you will still have the opportunity to come and meet us and ask questions to Rini or the rest of the panel at our conference in London. That's on the 5th of May, Saturday 5th of May. And it's called Wellness, What's the Evidence? So just look for that on Eventbrite. All the details are there. Um, I'll also add some links for resources for people who need to perhaps think about asking for help um, where they can do that and yeah I think that's it thank you very very much thank you so much for having me it's been fun and that's it but before you go if you're listening to this before the end of April 2018 and in reach of London then please do come along to our conference Rini and I will be joined by some other expert speakers to debunk nutritional myths and help you safely navigate the often confusing world of wellness The conference is called Wellness, What's the Evidence? And tickets are available on the Eventbrite platforms. Thanks again to Rini for being so incredibly generous with her time. You can find and follow Rini on Twitter where she is at McGregor underscore Rini and that's M-C-G-R-E-G-O-R underscore R-E-N-E-E and Instagram where she is at R underscore McGregor. I encourage all of you to go out and buy the book, especially if you're a wellness blogger, a personal trainer, or perhaps just someone concerned about someone that you know. The book is full of really helpful tips on how to spot the signs that an interest in healthy eating might be drifting into something more dangerous. In upcoming episodes, I talk to a wellness blogger who's had her own brush with orthorexia and came out the other side as a wellness rebel. And that's just a little bit of a hint for you. And I'll also be exploring the interesting world of drinkable meals. So stay tuned for that. All of that's coming up, so hit the subscribe button so you don't miss a thing. And that just leaves me to thank you once again very, very much for listening. And until next time, I wish you the very best of health. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.